June 24, 1983, 2639 Park Avenue East, Kansas City, Missouri. At about 5.45 p.m., 16-year-old Terry Allen leaves her house to run an errand. When she doesn't return home, her worried mother starts calling her friends. The next morning, her lifeless body is found in a brushy area a few blocks from her home. She has been strangled. Hi listeners, welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions expressed on this podcast are not professional ones. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. Listeners, let me apologize for not putting out an episode last week. I did worry a little that my fan might be disappointed, but life just got in the way, and also I didn't feel right about doing the case I was working on. My heart just wasn't in it. By contrast, I can't wait to do tonight's case. I have quite a few cases on my list of possible cases to cover on Prison City Murders. Some of them I've been working on for a while. Others I haven't gotten around to. Some I'm waiting on more information. A couple are ready to go, but honestly, I'm a little tired of them. I think I'll give them a rest for a while. That way, I'll be more enthusiastic when I get back to work on them. It occurred to me that I haven't done a cold case yet. Now, some listeners may not like unsolved cases, and I get that. 
You get all involved in a story and then you never find out how it ends. But I hope you'll give cold cases a chance because I found a few I really want to cover on the podcast. I'm often drawn to cold cases, I think because of the mystery of it, the unknown. Unsolved cases take more thought and imagination and even wild speculation. If you think you may not like cold cases, try taking a look at a few of the famous ones that true crime fans obsess over. The Delphi murders, Missy Beavers, John Benet Ramsey, Missing Mara Murray, and Madeline McCann, just to name a few. I think you'll find Unsolved Mysteries fascinating. Anyway, there are a couple of cases here in Leavenworth County where I live that are fascinating. I will cover them sometime, but they're my personal obsessions right now. So last week, I went to the trusty Kansas City Star newspaper and found a cold case article from a couple of years ago and started reading. It was Terry Allen's case, T-E-R-R-I, Allen, a girl. The saddest story. If I were a cold case detective, this is the one I'd want to solve. And sure enough, in the next article I came to, more of a roundup of a bunch of unsolved cases, cold case detective Benjamin Caldwell says, quote, someone is still alive who knows about that case. If only they'll call. It's a shame. She was a good kid. My plan was to find out, oh, that was unquote. My plan was to find out everything about the Terry Allen case. Who knows? Detectives always talk about the missing piece, the critical phone call. Maybe somebody out there will hear about the case and provide a crucial tip. That's always the hope. And if nothing else, the case doesn't get forgotten. I wish there were more information about the case. Like many unsolved cases, there isn't a lot of detail about the circumstances surrounding the murder. In this case, there will be way more questions than answers. However, There is something that happened while I was researching that I'd like to tell you about. Anybody who even briefly starts looking into a murder case can tell you about this phenomenon, the rabbit hole. If you're not familiar with this term, it comes from Lewis Carroll's and Walt Disney's Alice in Wonderland. Alice falls through a rabbit hole into this crazy world. That's how you feel when you're researching some of these cases. One thing leads to another and another, and something simple is suddenly hugely complex. 
that happened to me with this case. Went down some dark, dank rabbit holes. So listeners, sit back as we follow the heartbreaking murder case of Terry Allen, wherever it leads us. Terry Allen is born probably in 1967. That's just from doing the math. She died at age 16 in 1983. She died Friday night or early, early Saturday morning, June 24th or 25th. There were only two pieces of genealogical information I could find about her online. Her findagrave.com posting and her sophomore yearbook on ancestry.com. The picture you see online is her yearbook picture, and that's the one in the newspapers, too. I clipped her cheerleader picture out for the show notes. She looks so sweet, soft brown eyes, shy smile, big, puffy 80s hair. She reminds me a little bit of Bill Cosby's TV wife, Felicia Rashad, from back in the day. Terry Allen went to East High School in Kansas City. If you are familiar with Kansas City, East High School is at 924 Van Brunt Boulevard. According to the website, it opened in 1924 and operated as a high school until the late 1990s. It's now a 9 through 12 school of about 1,100 students, the largest in Kansas City. Just guessing, but it looks like at least twice as big as it was when Terry went there. There is a very diverse setup at the school. It's very welcoming of all kinds of students and encourages learning other languages and cultures. Demographically, it's reportedly about half Hispanic, a third black, and a fifth white and Asian. Just glancing through the yearbook again, that's roughly what it was in the 80s when Terry went there. I should say something about this area where Terry lives, and I'll try to be tactful. It's not a good part of town. If you listen to the news in Kansas City and hear about a murder, you hear the same streets over and over. Prospect, Independence Avenue, the Paseo, Troost, Holmes. Basically, the east side of Kansas City is a very high crime area. Now, I've talked about how diverse Kansas City is on other episodes, and I really like that about it. So I don't want to paint too bad a picture. If you drive anywhere in Kansas City, you'll find all different kinds of areas, even within just blocks. New suburban-looking homes, reclaimed historic homes, thriving urban areas, lots of parks. Up by one of the waterworks, there's actually a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Sometimes you feel like you're in the middle of the country, and then 
you come upon blocks of crack houses, abandoned buildings, vacant lots. If you know Kansas City, Terry's neighborhood is east of downtown between Holmes and Prospect, just south of where Interstate 70 meets I-35. In the 80s, Terry's neighborhood is the hood. Drugs, prostitution, a very high crime area. They're little pockets where people try to maintain a decent life, but it's very hard. I haven't been down there in quite a few years, so it may have lots of new places where people are trying to turn things around. I really hope so, but it's still not an area you want to be in after dark. Terry's address is 2639 Park Avenue East, not far from Spring Valley Park, just east of Highway 71. Interestingly, and ironically, if you use Google Maps and look up the address, that address is right in the middle of the Kansas City Police Department crime lab. This area is also not far from Kansas City's famous jazz district, 18th and Vine. The city has tried to clean up this area over the years, but it's still pretty seedy. Honestly, Terry's neighborhood is a very dangerous one. It's natural to wonder whether Terry Allen is influenced by all the bad things going on around her. Drugs, gangs, prostitution, crime. She wouldn't be the first teenage girl to get sucked into that world. However, nothing points to that. There's an article in the Kansas City Star Sports pages, actually, from about a month after her murder. The sports writer is Dennis Dodd, and he interviews a couple of Terry's teachers in a piece called Students' Everlasting Smile Lingers in Memories at East. It gives you a clear picture of a very responsible, ambitious, great student. Yes, girls like this go wild sometimes, but in this case, I don't think so. All I could find about Terry's family comes from this article, which says she was a daughter and a sister. The only relative mentioned anywhere else is her mother. I don't know if there's a dad in the picture or how old her siblings are, or if the mother's last name is Allen. Considering where they live, it's not a stretch to think maybe single mother working hard to make ends meet in a very tough part of town. I don't know whether Terry lived in a house or an apartment building. 2639 Park Avenue is not a residence anymore. It's the crime lab. There's an office building and apartments and little houses and lots of churches in the area. So 
it's hard to tell. The article says she walks out her front door, which makes me think of a house, not an apartment building. But again, not really sure. Okay, so Friday evening, June 25th, 1983, about 5.45 p.m. This is middle of the summer. Hot, muggy Kansas City night. It will be daylight for hours yet. Sunset not until about 9 o'clock. Robertson's article has a couple of sentences about this. Quote, The 16-year-old girl headed out her front door for a quick run to the cleaners. Unquote. Now that sounds like she's going to the dry cleaners. That seems unlikely to me. Plus, I wonder that they wouldn't be closed by that time, or at least close to closing. So the cleaners must be nearby, but it's the middle of summer and school's out. The only professional cleaning I can think of that a teenager might need is to dry clean a cheerleading or band uniform, maybe? Possible, but I think think the next sentence in the article is clearer. Quote, Alan had told her mother that she was simply running out to pick up a load of clothes, unquote. Now that sounds like she's going to the laundromat to get clothes out of the dryer. In poor neighborhoods, people don't have washers and dryers at home although most departments have laundry rooms. We could speculate that she's picking up some clothes from a friend's house. All that said, I really don't know where she's going, but I think it's within only a few blocks. I'm sure she doesn't have her own car. In fact, her mother may not have a car either. There's no mention of a bike, so I think she's on foot and maybe carrying a laundry bag or a laundry basket. Frustratingly, there's no report of whether Terry ever gets where she was going or not, even whether she takes any detours. Is her mom expecting her back soon? Maybe for dinner? 5.45 p.m. is one of those ambiguous times that could be before or after dinner. If there are other younger siblings, the family may have already eaten. Otherwise, maybe they eat later on when the temperatures cool down. Again, I can't say for sure. My impression from the articles is that her mother doesn't really start to worry until it gets late. And that's reasonable. It's a bad neighborhood, true, but I would guess that Terry is sociable and street smart. She's used to the area and the people in it. I would expect her to know some of the people and maybe stop and visit, but we just really don't know. Somehow, after she tells her mom she's going on this errand, Terry is snatched and strangled by somebody. It's only about a mile from Terry's address to where her body 
is found not very well hidden in a brushy area at 22nd and Woodland. If you know the area, that's near Lincoln College Prep School, a couple of blocks off the Paseo. Apparently, no one saw anything, or at least nobody reported seeing anything. Let's face it, many of the people who might have seen something are not law-abiding citizens who want anything to do with law enforcement. But it's broad daylight in Kansas City. And it's summer, Friday night. I would expect people to be sitting around outside, barbecuing, drinking beer. It's hot. A lot of people don't have air conditioning. I did take a Google Earth tour. Of course, this is 30 years later. This is mainly a residential area, as far as I can tell. I see a few little businesses and a lot of churches and vacant lots, plenty of wooded areas and overgrown stretches. At the time, in the 80s, this was a favorite area for prostitutes and drug addicts. To tell you the truth, I can't really figure out where she's going. The closest major roads are Highway 71 to the west and Prospect, Prospect Avenue to the east. Possibly Terry gets into a car with somebody she trusts or gets lured into a house or a secluded area. It's really frustrating not to be able to tell you more. Terry's body is found by some friends who are out looking for her the next morning at about 9 a.m. Listeners, that's a pretty big area to search, and a group of friends finds her that fast? I think they had some idea where she might be. I admit I'm a little suspicious of those friends who find her. I know the police are often suspicious of whoever finds the body. Maybe the police came down hard on them and couldn't find anything out, or there just wasn't anything to find out. Maybe that area is a favorite party spot for teens or something. Anyway, there's nothing reported about how the friends came to find her so quickly. Terry is strangled with a piece of clothing around her neck. I assume the piece of clothing was at the scene and the police are holding back exactly what that was so they can screen people who claim to know about the case. If only there are some people like that. Her clothing is pulled off the lower half of her body. Her hands are tied. Don't know for sure whether in front or back. Surprisingly to me, anyway, no signs of sexual assault are reported. There's nothing about whether the murder happened, where the body's found. It's possible she is killed somewhere else in a residence or a vehicle someplace else. It's also possible she strangled right there and just left. We don't know, and that makes it very hard to picture how the crime happened. 
The police have to know the answers to at least some of these questions, but my sense is that they're actually at the point of hoping, hoping somebody who knows something will contact them. Okay, listeners, that's all the information just about that's out there in Terry's case, except for one thing. Terry Allen is not the only young woman in Kansas City to be found strangled, half-nude, with hands tied during this time. In fact, in the 80s, in this part of Kansas City, many such crimes occurred. Time to dive down into the first rabbit hole. Kansas City Star, April 8, 1990. Reporter Tom Jackman. Headline, Serial Patterns Appear in 42 Unsolved Slayings. Since 1977, as many as six multiple murderers may have roamed the city. The Kansas City Star reviewed unsolved murders of 72 Kansas City area women slain over the past 13 years. The findings? 42 killings fall into six distinct patterns. Most victims were prostitutes and most were strangled. Listeners, this is a major project for the star. They interview detectives and go through police records and consult experts. Of the 72 murders, they select 42 victims, most young black women, most known prostitutes, most drug addicts, most strangled, all believed to have been killed in roughly the same small high-crime area of Kansas City. Ultimately, the researchers come up with a sort of a spreadsheet of victims, grouped mainly using time period, location, and manner of death. Here are the six groups. The Troost Avenue Killer, seven victims. 1977 to 1982. The Tied Up Murders, nine victims, 80 to 84. They put Terry Allen in this group. The Independence Avenue Mutilator, 10 victims, 82 to 89. The Downtown Victims, four. 1986. The Main Street victims, five of them, 86 to 87. And the Gillum Park Strangler, seven victims, 89 to 90. Okay, listeners, I need to rant for a minute about all this. People still write books about Jack the Ripper, and his body count? Only five? Kansas City, 1980s, 
42 women, six possible serial killers, barely even a regional story. And this article barely scratches the surface of how overwhelming the problem is. Imagine being a homicide detective on the ground in Kansas City in the 80s during this mess. Stressful, traumatic, frustrating. No wonder connections aren't made, mistakes are made, and cases go unsolved. Plus, it has to be said, detectives are human. And if there's more motivation to solve one murder over another because of what the victim did while they were alive, in only my opinion, that's perfectly understandable. Um, I better repeat my judgmental and politically incorrect warning if you want to skip ahead. Three, two, one. It's not sex work. It's prostitution. It's not victims of substance abuse. It's drunks and drug addicts. Yes, I realize people's circumstances vary, and there's mental illness, and it's all really complicated. But for the most part, choices are made and consequences follow. Nobody deserves to get murdered. But make no mistake, getting involved in drugs and prostitution greatly increases the chances of getting murdered. And arguing that this is victimless behavior is just brainless brainless. What about people who have to live in the neighborhoods that are overrun by prostitutes and drug addicts? Innocent victims like Terry who haven't made bad choices. Okay, I'm done. I have the benefit of hindsight. Looking back 30 years later, I know what happened in some of these cases. Some of them are solved, and that makes some of the patterns fall apart. However, I learned a lot by looking at why the cases were grouped as they were. The mutilator case is a lot different from the rest. These victims are all beaten or stabbed to death rather than strangled. Their bodies are found in the Missouri River, or I think a couple in the Blue River. So clearly, Terry's case is not likely to be part of this pattern. Three of the groups, the downtown victims, the Main Street victims, and the Gillum Park Strangler, are made up of murders that happen from 1986 to 1990, which is several years later than Terry's murder. It's possible that Terry's murder could be part of one of these groups, but I don't think so. 
the victims are all strangled, sometimes with a lig ligature and sometimes not. Several of them are associates, either friends or because they frequent the same area. And those in this group are all seriously drug addicted. Plus, some of these bodies are found much closer to the main downtown of Kansas City. Terry's neighborhood is actually a few miles from downtown Kansas City. Most of these women show signs of violent sexual assault, although not all. The remaining group besides Terry's is called the Troost Avenue Killer. Troost is a major north-south road in Kansas City that runs through Terry's neighborhood, not very far from where her body was found. This group of victims is made up of all known street prostitutes who mainly operate right there on Troost. Those murders start in 1977, and they're similar to Terry's murder, all strangled with a piece of clothing or a ligature. However, they are all found completely nude and sexually assaulted. Terry's case is part of what they call the tied-up murder case because all nine victims are found with their hands tied. Not sure exactly what each is bound with or how they're tied up. For now, I'm supposing there's a single serial, serial killer responsible for all of these in this group. There are some striking similarities in the cases. All the bodies are found nude from the waist down. All the victims are strangled with the ligature that's left around their necks, either an electric cord or a piece of the victim's clothing. A variety of items are used to tie the victim's hands. Eight of the nine behind their backs, one in front. The items used to tie them up were also left at the scene. Now, I'm not an expert, but I have seen every episode of Forensic Files, so I know that you can get DNA off ligatures. When the murderer is strangling the victim, they hold on very tight and sometimes leave skin and sweat and even blood cells behind on the ligature. So, I call the Kansas City Cold Case Squad to let them know about this. They immediately got the crime lab to process Terry Allen's evidence, and they solved the case. And then, KCPD invited me to go through all their cold cases and show them how to solve them. No, 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 that didn't happen. Hey, a podcaster can dream. However, with all the advances that will be made in forensic science, something like that could happen someday in at least some of these cases, maybe Terry's. I have no idea 
whether the evidence was handled and preserved correctly. This is the 80s. I hope so. Little spoiler alert. The first case in this series, January 1980, is considered solved. DNA on the victim is linked to a convicted murderer. The tied-up murders start in 1980, one in January, one in November. Next murder, not until December 1982. Then four very close together in 1983, including Terry's, starting May 20th and ending with Terry's on June 25th, or maybe the 4th. Then two more in January 1984. I'm not an expert on serial killers, but I think they do study timing of serial murders. The first three are about a year apart, then about six months, and four in just a single month. Interesting that it's right about when school gets out for the summer. Could be important, maybe not. Then another six months and two more in January. Then those murders stop. At least that's the theory if the groupings are correct. All are found naked from the waist down with pants or skirt either pulled completely down to their ankles or even completely off. Strikingly, no victim shows any sign of sexual assault. In this group, all the victims are young black women ages 15 to 26. Seven of the nine are known to be street prostitutes. The two who are not, Terry Allen and Jacqueline Davis, 26, they're both two of the cluster of four murders in June 1983. Jacqueline's murder is another one that often shows up on lists of cold cases in Kansas City. I didn't go into her case in much depth, just looked around a little at the newspaper account when her, her body was found. Jacqueline is the mother of three. The last time she's seen is leaving a midtown nightclub with a male companion. She's found tied up with a leather jacket around her neck and a plastic bag over her head. Or maybe that's the ligature. It's not really clear in the article. This feels a little different to me, but her murder could be related to Terry's. I checked a little online for the other cases as part of the that were part of the tied up murders case. Listeners, lots of little rabbit holes. I found the stories for all but one about the body being found, but not much else. Somebody was charged in one of the cases, but the charges were quickly dismissed. KCPD does have an Unsolved Homicides website. It's depressingly long and only goes back to 2012. 
I really wanted to find a public, great big spreadsheet with all the cold cases and where they were, if there was any progress or clue they could put out to the public. But no luck on that. Periodically, cases get publicized, like Terry Allen and Jacqueline Davis, but none of the rest were out there that I could find. So far as I know, the tied-up murders are still unsolved. For sure, up until 1990, when the big article came out in the Star, except for the one I mentioned, the very first one. That one's different. It's the case of Gwendolyn Kazine, K-I-Z-I-N-E, body found January 23, 1980. Gwendolyn is only 15 years old. According to the brief initial stories in the star, she is found strangled with her hands tied behind her back, but completely dressed. There's not much else in the news reports about Gwen's murder for decades. However, there is DNA. It is tested and found to belong to a serial killer. This dreadful creature, this serial killer, is caught. And he is sitting rotting, I hope, in a Missouri prison for life. At least, I hope it's for life. That finding him as the serial killer clears up at least a dozen of the 42 murders of the young women in Kansas City during the 1980s. Listeners, that is one big, fat, ugly rabbit hole, the case of the Kansas City Strangler, which I'll talk about in next week's podcast. Okay, listeners, while speculation time, I suspect most of my ideas are not anywhere close to what happened. There's just so little to go on. I do believe that the Kansas City, Missouri Cold Case Squad continues to put effort into Terry's case. I wonder if this is the file they give to new detectives hoping fresh eyes will see something new. So anything I can come up with, they've probably already checked but it can't hurt to do some analysis. Did the Kansas City Strangler, whom we'll talk about next week, murder Terry Allen? Well, no. At least, I don't think so. On the Kansas Department of Corrections offender search, inmates' incarceration history is shown right there online. So if I want to see if inmate X is in jail in Kansas on a certain date, it's right there. 
It's different in Missouri. The nicely formatted offender search for Missouri only shows current information, not a history. That history information is out there, but you have to download a big file and unzip it, and it's not in a format that's easy to understand. It looks like an old database that had columns and lots of zeros filling things in and cryptic codes. My first look tells me he's in jail in 1983, but I will dig into that Missouri Offender database a little more this week when I get time. It looks pretty interesting, actually. If not that serial killer, maybe another. We have 42 murders and possibly six serial killers in Kansas City when Terry's murdered. Isn't that just mind-boggling? So it's entirely possible Terry met up with a serial killer. Obligatory, not an expert on serial killers, but I know some basic things about them. In my opinion, the patterns support the idea of serial murders. Similar victims, locations, manners of death, that kind of thing. One thing that stands out to me is there's no sexual assault in the tied-up murders. That doesn't mean there isn't a sexual motivation. My first thought about their hands being tied is some kind of bondage thing. However, a detective in the article had an interesting thought about that. Quote, when we look at tying up a victim, we have to differentiate between functional tying and bondage tying. Functional tying of the hands simply keeps them from moving or dangling once the person is dead, while a bondage type of tying connotes sexual gratification. I would suspect that it is more functional than sexual in these cases, unquote. I was thinking the women are tied up to keep them from struggling, you know, scratching and clawing at the guy's hands. But it sounds like the detective knows they're tied up after they're strangled so they could be moved more easily. Maybe strangled from behind, bound and gagged or carried somewhere. Who knows? Without definitive information, it's possible to envision the murders happening lots of ways. It's easier to picture the murderer from just what we know. In my opinion, the real motivation is the violence involved in strangling a woman. It takes several minutes to strangle somebody, and the violence is 
up close. There's a real visual rage coming out in these cases and pulling their clothes down, leaving them pretty much dumped like trash. That's additional humiliation. A murderer who can do this is just evil and twisted. I don't like to put the murderer and our good kid Terry Allen in the same thought even. But if I have to guess, what I think happened is crossing paths with this dark, soulless monster, and that might be giving monsters a bad name, is actually what led to Terry Allen's death. Listeners, I apologize for giving you a lot more questions than answers this week, but I wanted to tell Terry Allen's story and keep her memory out there. I also fought the impulse to drive down to Kansas City and go see the Cold Case Squad and bug them about her case. But I'm sure all they need is some podcaster wasting their time. In my imagination, though, I did have a conversation with the Cole Case Squad. It went something like this. Listeners, this is always the first thing I want to ask law enforcement in cold cases. Just between us, detective, do you really know who did it? Are you just waiting to prosecute until there's a stronger case? Or is the person dead or already in jail or something? And can you just tell me about it? Now, in Terry's case, I would have to suppress the urge to ask that. But I certainly might ask, do you think it was a serial killer? If you do, then releasing some details about the similarities in the crime might lead to some tips Or, if you think Terry's murder was a copycat with a more personal motive, telling people you're looking for someone with a grudge against her might shake something loose. Is the evidence in Terry Allen's case preserved properly? If so, has it been reviewed for testing recently? If tests have been done, was anything found? It's just a thought. But maybe, even if there's nothing, you could hint around that there might be. Maybe that would make the killer nervous, especially with all the news out there about familial DNA. Is there anything more, even just a little thing, you can say about the details of the case? 
For example, is there anything special about what Terry was tied up with or strangled with? Did the killer take a souvenir, like her purse or a piece of jewelry? Maybe if you described something like that to the public, it might lead to a tip. Can you say anything about her whereabouts after she left the house? Where was she going? Did she get there? That and what she was wearing might jog somebody's memory. Okay, listeners, that's my attempt just throwing things out there for what it's worth. Terry Allen has a post on findagrave.com. There's not a picture of her tombstone on there, and she only has one virtual flower. That's for me. So sign up for the Find a Grave app. It's free. Then you can send her a virtual flower and post pictures of graves in your area. The app has an interactive map of all the cemeteries in the world that Find a Grave volunteers have posted. It's really pretty cool. I also found Gwendolyn Kazine's posting on findagrave.com. I think somebody posted the wrong picture for her. It's actually of a different victim, Naomi Kelly. I put in a request for somebody to post a picture of her tombstone, too. She's in the same cemetery that Terry Allen is in. It's the Lincoln Cemetery. That's up north of Arrowhead Stadium, if you know if you know the area of Kansas City, kind of a little east of 435 on, I think it was um, Missouri Highway 12. Anyway, it's a big place. It's right next to Mount Washington Cemetery. Looks like they just run together. I couldn't find anything about what happened to Terry's family. I wish they had resolution in Terry's case. Maybe someday that will happen. It sounds like they're people of faith. I'm hopeful that faith sustained them through what is the worst experience a family can ever have. Losing a family member to murder. I hope they know Terry's memory is a good one. She lived her short life well. From the appeal for tips, Terry L. Allen of Kansas City, age 16. Circumstances of the crime. Last seen at 5.45 p.m., June 24, 1983, leaving her home in the 2600 block of Park Avenue in Kansas City. Her strangled body was found at 9 a.m. the next morning in a bushy area 
near 22nd Street and Woodland Avenue. Suspect information, no identified suspect. Anyone with information is asked to call the Kansas City Police Cold Case Squad at 816-234-5136. And I put that in the show notes. As I said, I've mainly used articles in the Kansas City Star newspaper for this case. I have an online subscription for it. The more recent articles are on kansascity.com. I access the older articles on genealogybank.com. Finally, as always, I googled and wikied and went through genealogy sites. The links are in the show notes. And I put the phone number for the Cole Squad out there, too. Okay, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and write a review. Even critical feedback is appreciated. You can email me at prisoncitymurders, all one word, at gmail.com or comment on the cases on the podcast website, prisoncitymurders.blubrry. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.